Thank you, guys. I know it's not, uh, not necessarily easy uh, to get up in front of a room full of people and, uh, and share what God's doing in your life like that. Um, but I, I wanted them to do this because I wanted the rest of you to see the way that God is at work in this church, in the lives of these young people. Uh, young people often get a bad rap, um, and they think they're all hood rats and hoodlums, but... Um, no, God is at work in these people, and I am so excited about what he's doing, and I wanted you guys uh, to hear a taste of that. And, and as they came back from their retreat, one of the things that I impressed upon them, uh, because when you come back from retreat, everybody wants to stay there, right? You wanna continue in that retreat, that scene, that, 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 that situation. Uh, but that's not what God has called them to. God has called them back from that retreat to come back and to go and tell people about the goodness of Jesus, to proclaim the gospel and tell people that Jesus is alive and tell them how he can change their life as well. And I'm hoping that, that their fervor, their excitement will rub off on all of us, right? Because that, that is what all of us have been tasked to do, to go and tell. So many of us often assume that it's better left for the, the smarter, the bolder, the wiser Christians. But that's not biblical. That's our own laziness, our own insecurity maybe. God never said those kinds of things. Today we're gonna conclude our series, uh, Redeemed for a Purpose. We're gonna conclude our series on our purpose statement. And uh, to do so, we're gonna do something a little bit different than I generally do. If you show up here on any given week, we're gonna be working through a singular text and we'll walk through that verse by verse. And we're still gonna work verse by verse, but we're gonna do so through three different passages. passages. And the reason for this is so that we can take a little bit of a broader look at what the Bible has to say on evangelism. And so from each passage, we will glean kind of a, a singular truth that helps us understand evangelism better and understand our responsibility as the church to evangelize. So I'd like for us to begin in the Old Testament. If you want to, you can turn your Bible to Isaiah 42, or it'll be up on the screen behind me. But we'll be in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through seven. And Isaiah chapter 42 is the first of four passages that scholars call the servant songs. And in these songs, God promises to send a servant, a servant who will restore his people and bring salvation to a lost world. So read with me from verses one to seven. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench and he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness." So these servant songs, and hopefully you see that here in Isaiah 42, there's really only one person that fits this bill. 
one person that fits the description. Some have argued that this is talking about Israel as a whole, the nation of Israel. But as you read these songs, it becomes clear that Jesus is the only one who can really fit this entire description. Verse one reads that God's soul delights in this servant. That's the same language used in the gospels at the baptism of Jesus when God says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. God upholds Jesus, his servant, and he puts his spirit within him. And you might find that a little bit strange, right? Because why would God need to uphold Jesus and put his spirit upon him? Because Jesus is himself God. But this is referring to Jesus' earthly ministry where he worked in conjunction with God and with the Holy Spirit. You see, when Jesus took on human nature, when he came to earth, he voluntarily set aside some of his glory and some of his divine privilege. And so in his ministry, he was dependent upon the Father and the Spirit. Then Isaiah goes on to say that this servant will bring forth justice to the nations. Now before we keep going, we need to explain how he's using the word justice and how he's using the term nations. When we think of justice, we often think of it in terms of treatment, right? Are we or is someone else being treated fairly? And the Hebrew word for justice does carry that sense and that meaning at times. It could also refer to a judicial decision, but it can also be used much more broadly to kind of speak of the general order or way that things work. And I think it's this broader sense that's being used here. And I say that because of what we find in Isaiah chapter 41. We're not gonna read that, but in Isaiah chapter 41, God, through his prophet, is challenging the false gods and idols of humanity. And he's kind of poking fun at them, right? He's kind of asking them, drawing them in, asking them to do something. God says to these idols, do anything. Predict the future. I'm predicting the future. Why don't you predict the future, idols? You can do something good to me. Do something harmful to me. I don't care what you do. Just do something, anything at all. And God is doing this. He's challenging these idols to highlight the, the, the foolishness of human religion, to highlight how void it truly is of any kind of true hope. Human idolatry and human religion is a product of humanity's own selfishness and pride. And because of that, it's only going to breed more of the same, more selfishness, more pride. Humanity and their false gods are incapable of producing anything resembling true and perfect justice. But this servant from Isaiah 42, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, he will bring true justice to the nations. It's a reworking of the entire human order so that it, all of it comes underneath and submits to the ways of the Lord. And this servant, he sees to it that, that every nation, every people group submits to the lordship of God. Submission to God's justice is the only hope that the nations have for a truly just world. Now, nations is not the, uh, the, the modern political countries that we think of. When the Bible speaks of the nations, it's not talking about Canada and the United States. This is referring to people groups. Any modern country can have tons of people groups within it. So what is, is predicted here, what is promised here is every people group in every nation 
submitting to and living according to God's definition of justice and the entire world is better off for it. That sounds like a very good place to live. So verses two and three, they they contrast this servant, Jesus, with other human rulers. Chapter 41 spoke of King Cyrus of Persia and he would come in and he would trample over other people to establish his own rule, but this servant does not come in that way. He does not come with arrogant cries and speeches that you'd expect from a human ruler. He doesn't step on the weak on his way to get to the top. He won't break the bruised reed. He won't snuff out the, the faintly flickering candle wick. He's going to bring and establish the true justice of God over all people, over even the weak. It will be to the benefit of every nation, every person living on the earth. He's not gonna grow faint or be discouraged. There's nothing that will hinder this from coming to fruition. This servant will accomplish his task. God's justice will reign over the nations. Even the coastlands, it says, are waiting for his law. The coastlands are islands, those places that are really difficult to reach. So this isn't just the mainland. This is even the most remote people groups, the ones hidden away that have never been talked to by another person. They will also know and come under the justice of God. This is a promise of how God is going to act. A guarantee that this is going to happen. That's what, verses, uh, that's what verse five is for. It's reminding us who made this promise. It's God who created the heaven and the earth, who sustains all things. He is the one making this promise. He will use his servant to restore the world to the way it should be. And the servant, it says, was to be a covenant to the people, to Israel. And what that means is that he would demonstrate that God's covenant with Israel remained intact. Despite their sinfulness, despite their punishment and exile, God was going to keep the covenant and now the promise to send his servant proves that. It gives further evidence that 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 covenant will be kept. But this servant would also be a light to the nations. He was to bring sight to the blind, freedom to those in prison. Jesus was going to come and has come to show the world who God is, to show them that they can be delivered from sin and death. Now, what does any of that have to do with sharing the gospel? Throughout the Old Testament, the focus generally falls on Israel, how God called the nation of Israel to be his people, how he called them to be like him, to show the world what it meant to be like God. Their society was supposed to be governed by God's justice, not man's justice. However, God's calling of Israel and their submission to the justice of God was always intended to lead other nations to do the exact same thing. If you can think all the way back to the book of Genesis, when God promised to turn Abraham into a great nation, that promise included the blessing of all other nations as well. All throughout the Psalms, we find that God expects all nations to worship him one day. All of the nations are called to cry out in praise and extol God's name. In the book of Jonah, God shows compassion to the wicked Assyrians. In Daniel, God uses Daniel to lead Nebuchadnezzar to repentance. What we see here in Isaiah 42 is that God cares deeply for the nations. God cares for lost people. And if that's true, then the church also must care deeply for lost people. That's number one. The church must care deeply for lost people. 
God's plan was never just about Israel. They enjoyed a special role in that plan. God's plan was never just about the church. We enjoy a special role in that plan. But God's sights have always been set on the entire world. Israel was, and the church is just the means of spreading his glory across the world. Now the rest of our time today is gonna focus a little bit more on local outreach, local evangelism, how we can do that in our daily lives. But I don't wanna uh, downplay our responsibility to reach the nations, to reach unreached peoples, to reach outside of Belleville, outside of our country even. Today, there are 7,000 known unreached people groups. A group is considered unreached if less than 2% of its population is Christian. And in these areas where these people are unreached, not always, but usually, there is very little to no access to the gospel. These 7,000 groups contain 3 billion people. Over a third of the world's population lives in these groups where there is very little to no access to the gospel. And I hope that sits heavy on you. Billions of people will be born, will live their life, and then they will die without ever hearing the name of Jesus. And they will be judged for their sin for eternity. And what's even crazier than that stat is that less than 1% of all church missionary giving goes to reaching people in these areas. Not all church giving, less than 1% of missionary giving, which is already way less than church giving. Less than 1% is going to reaching these people who will live their whole lives and never hear the name of Jesus. Man, that should absolutely wreck us. That should light a fire under us. That's why we as a church have decided to prioritize our, our regular missionary support going to people who are going to work in these areas, who are reaching unreached peoples because that's where the greatest need is. Now I know that you and I are gonna have more tangible opportunities for missions in our immediate context, but that should not cause us to forget the role we play in global missions, in reaching the nations. I know that God doesn't call every one of us to be a missionary to the nations. I do think that all of us at some point need to consider whether God is calling us to go to the nations. But if we're not, every local church has a role to play in global missions in reaching the nations. We should seek to train and send people to go, support those who are going financially. In Matthew 9, Jesus tells his followers that there is this massive harvest and it's all ready to be reaped, but there is a need for workers. So if we're not going, we ought to be praying for those who will or those who are. We pray for those who are working to minister to the unreached. We pray for God to raise up even more workers to go to these people from within our church and from without it those who are willing to give their lives to the work of reaching lost people who have never heard the gospel. Prayer is one of the most important ways that we support those who go to the nations. And we wanna be faithful in doing this as a church. And you're gonna see over this next year, we're gonna make a little bit more of a concerted, concerted effort to pray together as a church.
But one of the ways we wanna support those who are going to the nations is, is we're gonna start praying regularly in our services for a different unreached people group. Every single week, it'll be a different one. It'll go in the weekly update as well so that you guys can be praying through the week as well, asking God to raise up more workers who will go and proclaim the gospel to the nations. Isaiah 42 tells us that Jesus was always intended to bring salvation, not just to Israel, not just to the church, to all people. God is never focused only on those who are currently his people. He is also focused on those who will be his people. If God cares for lost people and desires to save them, this has to be our desire as well. But simple compassion for the lost is not enough. It must translate into action. Turn with me to Mark chapter one and we'll read verses 16 through 20. Verse 16, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat, with, with the hired servants and followed him. So this, this picks up right after Jesus has begun his preaching ministry. He begins to proclaim the gospel and now he's making his way alongside the Sea of Galilee and, after, and as he does, he passes Simon and Andrew. You probably know Simon better as Peter. So Simon, Peter, uh, and Andrew, his brother, they were fishermen. They were at work when Jesus passes by and as he passes by, he says, hey, Come follow me and I'm going to make you into fishers of men. And they drop their nets and they follow. Then he comes to John and James and he calls them and immediately they drop their nets, the ones they were prepping and caring for. They leave their father and his workers and they follow Jesus. It's interesting. We find this language of, of being fishers of men, of going fishing for people. We find this in the Old Testament as well. But in the Old Testament, it's always used in the context of gathering people for judgment. But Jesus has come. The servant from Isaiah 42 has come and he's reversed this metaphor. He's no longer gathering people for judgment but for salvation. And the followers of Jesus have a part to play in this. These men will no longer fish for food. They're fishing for people who will experience the grace and goodness of God. From the very beginning, the very first disciples that Jesus called to follow him, Jesus was clear. You're going to be fishers of men. You're going to tell others about me. You're going to be my witness to the world. You will tell the world of the salvation that I have brought. In American churches today, we might not say it, but so many of us have this mindset that evangelism is for the super Christians. It's for the ones who are really serious about Jesus. It's for the pastors, for the missionaries who go overseas. But that is not what we find in God's word. The desire to reach the lost is not for some subset of certain Christians. It's for Christians. 
If God loves lost people, we must also love lost people. If God desires to see the nations saved, we must desire to see the nations saved. Christians, please hear me. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have been commanded by Jesus to proclaim his gospel. This command to be a fisher of men was not only for the 12 disciples. It was for all who followed him. Matthew 5, he tells all of his followers again, not just the 12, you are to be salt and light in the world so people can see who God is. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes to the Christians, God has given you this ministry of reconciliation, of showing people who he is and bringing them into faith. In Acts 8, after Stephen was stoned, it isn't the apostles, oh, the apostles were scattered, but it isn't scattered. It isn't just the apostles who were scattered. It's the whole church. And the entire church left and they all shared the gospel as they went. The early church did not multiply so dramatically just because Paul was starting new churches. It multiplied because every single believer understood it is my responsibility to share the gospel. And they took that seriously. They were a witness to their friends, their families, their neighbors, their coworkers. The first thing Jesus did when he called his first disciple was tell them, hey, you're gonna be a witness for me. It's not a coincidence that being a witness was also the last command Jesus gave his followers before leaving earth as well. The church must be a witness to lost people. That's number two. The church must be a witness to lost people. All of us are called to be witnesses for Christ in a lost world. We see that in Mark 1. We see that in the Great Commission. When he called his first disciples, it came with the expectation of evangelism. When Jesus left the earth, he gave the expectation of evangelism. Evangelism is written into the DNA of every healthy church. There is no such thing as a healthy church that doesn't evangelize. Yet so many of us have simply decided it's not my job. I read a book recently it's called The Autopsy of a Deceased Church. It's, uh, it's by a man named Tom Rainer. It's the same guy that gave me that fun list from a couple weeks ago of all the reasons churches split over. Uh, he's got tons of pastoral experience. He's, he's an evaluator for churches now. He goes in, helps struggling churches become healthy again. But many, time, many times, the churches that bring him in are unwilling to listen to any of the changes he suggests. Those churches usually die within a number of years. And from his work, he has found several patterns that dying churches share. And he wrote that one of the strongest indicators that a church is dying and headed towards closing its doors is when the Great Commission becomes the Great Omission. Dying churches forego the Great Commission. That's one thing they all have in common. They've decided God's plan is secondary to our own plans for what the church should look like. When we decide that it's only the pastors or the missionaries who share the gospel, we're telling God, yeah, I know you had a plan, dude, but I like my plan better. When we decide to forego God's design for the church and do things our own way, we shouldn't be surprised when churches die. How often did it work for Israel when they told God, we'll take it from here, we'll do it our way now? Literally not once. Terrible every single time. 
Why would we think we're any different? You guys, we cannot fall into the trap of thinking that, that our success as a church hinges only on having a certain number of ministries, having the best ministries, what our attendance looks like, what the bank statement says. Those things are important and, and, and need their attention in their own right. But we have to keep our eyes outside of the church as well because God does. God has shown us his plan and desire to reach the nations. He's called us into this work. Now, I know that can be an intimidating task, but luckily, God's word is full of examples on how we can do this. I wanna look at one of those with you. Turn to Colossians 4 with me. Colossians 4, verses three through six. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. As Paul is wrapping up his letter here to the Colossian church, writing from prison, and even though he's in prison, he's still telling them, pray for me. Pray that God would give me opportunities to share the mystery of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Man, if there was ever someone who could say, I think I've done enough. I think I'm gonna take a break and let somebody else take up the mantle of evangelism. It was Paul. He's literally in jail for sharing the gospel and he's writing to other Christians, asking them to pray for more opportunities in jail to share the gospel. This is why Paul was so annoying to all of the enemies of the church. Like he goes into one town, sweet, uh, people believe I start a church. So they beat him up and he's okay, fine, I'll go to the next town. People believe he starts another church. And they're like, oh, well, you know what? We'll throw you in jail. And Paul's like, great, what's your jailer's name? Because I'm gonna convert him too. Also, all of my cellmates, yeah, they're Christians now. We're gonna be singing hymns later if you wanna stop by. You just, you couldn't stop the dude. He was always sharing the gospel. And I say all that because we often hold Paul up as kind of a superman of the Christian faith. And in some sense, he is a great example. We should look to him as an example of faith and boldness and consistency. But look at the end of verse four. Paul is asking them to pray that he would be able to make it clear as he ought to. Even Paul, the greatest missionary who ever lived, was a little concerned that he might not say things the right way. Can you guys relate to that? Yeah, I can. So many of us share that same fear. And if you do, let me tell you, you're in good company. You are in great company with the Apostle Paul. But Paul didn't let that fear of not speaking perfectly keep him from speaking. Instead, it drove him to greater dependence on the Lord, to greater commitment to prayer. There's a hundred reasons why we might not share the gospel. We don't know what to say. We fear rejection or persecution. You know, we don't know enough non-Christians. I'm just not a good speaker in general. Those are real fears, but none of them are legitimate reasons to stay silent. 
If you have those fears that are preventing you from sharing the gospel, take them to the Lord in prayer. Let the things that Paul said to pray about for him, take those things and pray about them for us, for our church. Man, we should be praying constantly that God would open doors for Redemption Bible Church to share the gospel in the city of Belleville. We should pray for wisdom and boldness and strength. Pray for the right words so that we can take those opportunities when they come. This is how we fulfill our purpose as a church. In verses five and six then, Paul shifts a little bit. No longer asking prayer for his own witness, but instead telling the Christians that all of you have your own opportunity now. There's opportunities all around you to share the gospel. He's not expecting the Colossian Christians to pack up and go overseas to be a missionary, but he does expect bold witness for Christ in their homes, in their workplaces, at practice, in their communities. And so he tells them, walk in wisdom towards outsiders so that you can redeem or make the best use of the time. We live in a time in history where salvation is available to all people. The gospel is freely given, freely offered. There's opportunities everywhere to be a witness. He doesn't use the language of fishing for men here, but that's what he's telling us. Make use of the time by being fishers of men. Take advantage of this time where the gospel has gone out. Go and be a witness. Wherever you are in, in life, whatever station, whatever job, whatever opportunities you have, take them as they come. Because you can be a witness in your own home. You can be a witness in your job, in your school, in your team, anywhere in your community. But it involves two things. Right speech and right action. Faithful witness to lost people requires right action and right speech. That's number three. Paul says that we should walk wisely, especially before those outside the church. How the world around us perceives us as believers and as a church matters. And I know it's popular in some Christian circles to say it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what anyone thinks of us because we live for God and we, not, we don't live for man. And there's a sense in which that is true. But there's a little bit more nuance that's needed there. The opinions of the world should never cause us to shy away from the truth of God's word. It should not lead us to reject what God has said is good and right. The fear of persecution should not keep us from being obedient to the Lord. We do not forsake God's word to save face with the culture around us. But at the same time, our reputation with those outside the church absolutely matters. People should know that Redemption Bible Church stands firmly on the truth of God's word, but it should also be known as an incredible blessing to the community around us. It should be known as people who are kind and compassionate and gentle and selfless and loving and servant-hearted. How non-Christians in our community perceive us or how they perceive the gospel, rather, is directly tied to how they perceive us. Right? People won't trust the message of a Christian whose life looks nothing like the Jesus they claim to follow. This is one of the reasons we've pursued so many service opportunities in the city of Belleville and why we'll continue to do so. Because if they perceive us as people who are invested in the community, who love the community, who serve the community, 
If they see that we're actually like Jesus, they're gonna be far more inclined to listen to our message than they will be for a church who never sets foot outside their doors. If you're known at work as a selfish jerk, when you finally invite your coworkers to church, you think they're gonna come? Probably not. But if you're helpful, if you're patient, if you're kind, they're gonna be far more likely to respond to your invitation. Walking wisely towards outsiders matters because it gives our speech greater credibility. But even still, our speech must be right. Our speech must be filled with grace and seasoned with salt, Paul says. What we say is important, but so is how we say it. Our speech, whether in normal conversation or in sharing the gospel, should be gracious. That means our emotions don't dominate our speech. Even if we disagree with someone sharply, we can do so with gentleness and respect. This should be our habit. Because if it's not your habit, if you don't speak with grace in your regular speech and conversation, you're probably not gonna do so when you try to share the gospel and someone pushes back on you. To season our speech with salt means that we speak wisely and thoughtfully so that we can answer every person appropriately. Different people and skill sets call for different approaches in sharing the gospel. Know your audience so you can speak their language. Know yourself so that you can evangelize effectively. All throughout scripture, we see different approaches to sharing the gospel. Being tasked with evangelism doesn't mean that you have to stop every person you see at the grocery store. You could try that. I don't know how fruitful it will be, but you can try it. I'm not downplaying spontaneously sharing the gospel. I think that's a good thing. We see that in scripture as well. It can be appropriate, but it's not the only way that we find in scripture. The Bible provides examples of God's people bearing witness in all kinds of ways. Some of you might be uh, great at sharing your testimony with people you pass on the street, like the woman from John 4. She went to her hometown and said, hey, let me tell you what Jesus did for me, what he said to me, and then I want you to come and see him. And I've talked with some of you. Some of you guys are amazing at that, way better at it than I am. For others, that's not really in your wheelhouse, and that's okay. You don't have to stop strangers on the street, but to obey Jesus, you still have to be a witness in both word and deed. You may do better asking questions about God and faith over dinner with your neighbor. Some of you may excel in answering questions that unsaved people have about the Bible, like Philip did with the Ethiopian eunuch. Some of us may do better with an apologetic approach where we answer questions about it. We defend the truthfulness and the logic of God, just like Paul did in Acts 17. Other times, you know, we, we won't even really have the opportunity to give a gospel presentation. But we can still share the truth of the gospel by weaving it into our way of speaking. We take the core truths of the gospel and, and so ingrain them into our speaking that we can't help but share the gospel with the people we talk to. There's a great, uh, there's a great book on, on that idea. It's, it's called Gospel Threads. It's by David Platt. Uh, you can, it's really short and it's cheap. You can buy it online or it's free online. Uh, the, the digital version is free. But he expands on this approach, but I wanna explain a little bit more clearly what he means there in this book. He, he says, when someone asks you how you're doing, don't you say, oh, I am good. Man, tell them about the joy that you have in Christ, that you have found in Christ, because that might lead to an actual opportunity to share the gospel. When you're out on the boat with your friends, man, talk about how incredible and majestic God's creation is, because that might lead to an opportunity to share the gospel. When people ask you about your life, 
You can tell them about what God has been teaching you. When someone talks to you about the shame that they feel over a mistake they made, man, tell them about the freedom from shame that is found in Jesus Christ. When you're struggling with hardship, don't complain about it to others. Talk about instead how Jesus is sustaining you in that hardship. When you're grieving, make sure that you talk about and highlight the hope that you have because of the resurrection of Jesus. These aren't full-blown gospel presentations. They may lead to them, but you are still being a witness. You are still telling people the truth of the gospel. If we can weave these gospel truths into our normal conversation, then on a regular basis, we are giving people bits and pieces of the gospel that hopefully will lead to greater opportunities to share it in full. But as I said, as Paul said, all of that conversation needs to be backed up by the way that we live. We can't talk about the joy we have in Christ and then complain and grumble and be miserable about every little thing. We can't talk about being changed and transformed by the gospel and then act no differently than the world around us. There are so many different approaches we can take to sharing the gospel, but they're likely to be unfruitful if we look and act nothing like Jesus. We must love people because God does. God loves lost people and so must we. We need to be a witness to lost people because God has commanded us to do so. But we do that with both right action and right speech. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you have loved the nations, that you love this whole world so much that you sent your son to die for us, to bear the penalty of our sins so that we might be forgiven and know you and have relationship with you. But Lord, I pray that you would stir in us a desire to reach lost people, that we would not be content to sit here within these walls and just talk to each other. Lord, there are people in this city right around us who need to know Jesus. And I ask that you would give us opportunities. I ask that your spirit would give us the boldness to take those opportunities. God, would you use this church, this body, to bring many in the city of Belleville into saving faith and relationship with you? And God, we pray for not one specific unreached people group, but for the unreached around the world. Lord, those who don't have access to the gospel, and we pray that you would raise up new missionaries to go, to proclaim the gospel so that they too might taste the goodness and mercy of God. God, help us to be a church that evangelizes, a church that honors and obeys the Great Commission. I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.